0: But that was kind of like a sobering reminder that we may be carrying a whole bunch of different pathogens within us, but it's the combined interaction of these other microbes that are keeping us healthy. And so that when there is an imbalance, then there's an opening, you know, for, for some of these to kind of rear their heads.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Poo. Crap doo-doo. Shit. Sorry to my poor producer. The stuff that comes out of our butts, or at least I hope it comes out of your butt with some regularity, and if it doesn't, I hope you're seeing someone about that, and also colostomy bags can be life-saving. For all that poop is undeniably disgusting, we're often weirdly obsessed with talking about it. There's lots of magazine articles that will tell you how often you should poop, how much fiber you should be getting, and the answer is always more, and even offering supplements and teas to improve the experience. There are Squatty Potties and Metamucil and entire books devoted to the inside of a baby's diaper. But for all of that, how much do most of us really know about our number two? The Browns in the Super Bowl are actually complex mixes of food and microbes. They not only could tell us about our health, they could be the key to a more sustainable future. Here to give us the crap on crap is Bryn Nelson. He's a science writer and former microbiologist who has written for Newsday, The New York Times, Nature, and many other outlets. And he's here now to talk about his new book, Flesh, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure. Bryn, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks so much, Bethany. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: First, I have to say, I was actually struck while reading this book by how regular you are. (laughs) No offense, (laughs) but you appear to have no pooping issues. And I kind of figured that a book about poo would have some deep driving intestinal problems that kind of presage your interest, but you don't. And I was wondering what, what kind of drew you to write about poop
0: well well my my background is a, a, a as a microbiologist, and so I've always been interested in microbes and uh, the the human microbiome uh, within us, and um I guess I am fairly regular uh, but I was also really interested in what kind of microbes are inside of me, what are they doing and you know, I like other people would tend to flush and forget. And, you know, I started hearing more stories about the utility of poop. Um, I did a feature story for a British magazine called Mosaic on fecal transplants. And in that case, someone's poop. It can be literally life-saving. Uh, you're literally transplanting your microbiome to someone else, and that can save their life if they have a bad uh, bacterial infection. Uh, most often, it's Clostridioides difficile or C. diff, and it's a very uh, horrible, often uh, hospital-acquired infection. And I was so fascinated by this this substance that you know many of us find disgusting. We don't always like to to think about it and in the right place at the right time it can be transformative and and for many people absolutely life-saving so so i was just um fascinated and and yes i was also really interested in in <clears throat> what was coming out of my body and i wanted to be more observant and um i guess i'm blessed with being fairly regular, <laughs> but, uh, but I did try and, uh, uh experiment even so with the different supplements and, uh, products to, to see what would happen.
1: Um, so yeah, I mean, people's health is kind of the most obvious angle here. Um, People have been contemplating their own crap for a very long time. (laughs) It's like an early form of meditation. It it seems like we're always talking about how we need to poop more unless we need to poop less. (laughs) And for some reason, I absorbed in the cultural zeitgeist that people should poop every day, once a day, and more than that is bad, and less than that is also bad. Is this true?
0: Uh, In a a short answer, no. Um, And and part of that is that what comes out of us is obviously a reflection of what goes into us. And uh, we have uh, many different diets. Uh, How often we go and uh, the volume can be a direct reflection of our diets. So um, how many vegetables are we eating? Do we have a diet that's high in fiber? Um, If you have a diet that's high in fiber, you will tend to poop more often. And it will be, uh, you know, bulkier, and and that's actually uh, <clears throat> normal. If you want to, you know, put quotes around that, uh, it, it turns out that there's actually a very large distribution curve, and there was a study um, out of the UK, and they used blue dyed muffins as a marker uh, to see how long it would take to go from your mouth out of your butt. And uh, there was this remarkable distribution among uh, people who describe themselves as healthy uh, from something less than 10 hours to uh, seven days. Now, at either end of those extremes, I would think that, you know, that may not be the most desirable <laughs> but but what it shows is that you know anyone who says you know you have to go you know once a day and it has to be this color and it has to be you know this shape um th- there there's nothing uh that specific about our output and even you know among us uh it can it can vary from day to day depending on your activity levels so i think it's more what's happening to you over time and you know, can you be observant enough to understand what your body's telling you? So that if you're going, you know, regularly twice a day, and then suddenly you're up to five times a day, you know, maybe that might be telling you something. Um, so that's that's, I think, you know, part of the 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 story of of of, of flush is that, you know, we're all different, <clears throat> and uh, there's a great many things that that impact our output. I, there's been a long history of people that have tried to sell us supplements detox uh formulations you know and convincing us that there's like one right way to poop <laughs> and and there really and there really isn't it's <clears throat> whatever is 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 healthy for you over the long haul and and you know as long as uh you know you're reasonably regular over time.
1: Yeah. And speaking of uh, people trying to sell us things, I've noticed how people are not just obsessed with how often, but also how it looks and how it sounds and how it (laughs) smells. And you note that Dr. Oz at one point said that our poops need to enter the toilet like perfect silent divers. And I don't know about you, but that is a lot of extra intestinal pressure that I don't need in my life.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. I had a little bit of fun with that, because uh, his description was so precise. Uh, And and that's exactly what I think is the pressure that we don't need, right? You know, like, my poop isn't always going to be perfectly bronzed. It's not going to enter the pool like a a diver from Acapulco. You know, (laughs) it's not going to make this certain sound. And it's okay, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, and we have this whole Bristol scale, Bristol stool scale, and it goes from you know on the one end constipation, which is is not healthy if you have uh, chronic constipation, and on the other hand, if you have chronic diarrhea, <clears throat> we know that those are unhealthy. There are variations um, in between that, and you can vary. Uh, accordingly, you know, depending on 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 your diet in the day, but but yeah, again, <laughs> you know, anyone who tells you that your your poop has to look exactly like this and sound exactly like this and smell exactly like this on a consistent basis, I think is is probably trying to sell you something.
1: I mean, I have too much to worry about as it is, and now, <laughs> um, and so one thing that I really loved is how much self experimentation you did in this mm-hmm. book. Kind of trying to play with your poo, mostly without touching it. Um, and <laughs> so one of the things you did was you actually swallowed a whole tablespoonful of sesame seeds. Yes. And then you also did it with corn to see yes. how fast your gut transit time was. Yes. So what'd you get? So what's really fascinating about this, and I I
0: didn't really um, learn this until I was uh, pretty much done with the book. It it also depends on what time of the day you're doing it, right? So uh, the sesame seeds um, I did in the morning, and you basically take a, a tablespoon of sesame seeds, you mix them in a glass of water, <clears throat> you know, when you when you swallow them, and then you can see when they come out the other end because sesame seeds are are largely undigested, and so they're they're pretty apparent, and so in that case, it was about, um, 16 hours. So for pretty, you know, on, on the fast, on the on, you know, on the, a little bit of the faster side, um, but still kind of within, you know, your, your, um, <clears throat> your kind of standard of deviation. And then I tried it with corn. So corn also works right because the outer layer, um, is, um, mainly in uh, cellulose and so we can't digest it as well and so yes corn tends to be apparent on the other end as well and in that was case
1: cooked corn or was it was it it, no it, no
0: no no it was cooked corn it was cooked
1: like canned
0: yes yeah yeah okay, corn, okay. corn corn on the corn on the cob you know essentially. Okay. Yeah. um and um and at that and in, in that case i i, I generally had that for dinner But what I realized is that in that case, it was more like uh, 24 hours. Um, But that's because I was doing it in the evening and your body has these cycles. And so your intestinal tract is more active, of course, during the day. And then things tend to quiet down at night, right? So there's this eight hour window. And so, of course, it made sense that depending on when I was doing this test throughout the day, I would either hit that window or I'd have to wait until, you know, basically the the, the gastrointestinal system is more active. So that was just kind of an interesting aha moment, you know, and there was this eight-hour difference, but that makes sense because you have this natural uh, cycle, uh, you know, morning, evening and so anyway, so that, but that's an easy way to, to do it. You can, you can do it with food dye as well. Um, if you go to the doctor, a lot of times they do these more uh, expensive and extensive pills. Uh, some of them actually have cameras so that they can take pictures as they're going through you. But if you just kind of want to get a sense of where you're at, um, yeah, different food items actually work pretty well.
1: Oh my goodness. You know what I just realized? I just realized, you know how, um, intermittent fasting is like having a moment. I will bet at some point there's going to be some intermittent fasting diet guru. Who's going to be like, okay, so first you're going to take sesame seeds at these times. Then you're going to find your optimal gut motility. And you're only going to eat during those gut motility (laughs) times. Oh no. Oh no.
0: (laughs) I mean it, 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 there are products for just about anything that you can think of having to do with uh with our gastro uh, gastrointestinal tract so I don't doubt that there will be more people trying to uh to monetize <laughs> some aspect of this but I think that that's I think that's another reason I mean you know again that's why we should be careful right if you're educated about how your body actually works. And if you train yourself to be observant about what goes in and what comes out, I think you're going to be less susceptible if someone's trying to sell you some snake oil.
1: So- Speaking of education, you were talking about kind of your gut transit time, which turned out to be between about 16 and 24 hours. What are Mm -hmm. the things that kind of determine that gut transit time? What are the steps between a food entering your mouth and coming out the other end as a brown mass full of corn?
0: (laughs) Well, the active digestion is actually quite complicated and and we know the uh the the main steps along the way, but I think what's really fascinating is that we still don't entirely know all of the details. Um, you know, there's there's still even some debate over what may or may not be a new set of salivary glands that were just discovered. So we're we're still discovering these aspects of digestion, which I think is just uh, remarkable that we you know we know that we know the basics. <clears throat> we also know that uh, that uh, things move through us slightly different based on uh, the amount of protein, uh, carbohydrates. At least uh, in terms of how quickly they can be digested digested, you know, for carbohydrate, very simple carbohydrates, you're actually starting the digestion in your mouth with the salivary glands. Um, and so this is a process that, you know, includes the stomach. Also the small intestine is doing a lot of the digestion and absorption. And then you start getting the involvement of a lot of your uh, gut microbes. And <clears throat> so those are going to be breaking down things like fiber, Uh, they're going to be helping you synthesize vitamins. Uh, they're going to help regulate the water content, um, in your gut. And we know that, uh, for men and women, the transit times are somewhat different, uh, depending on the stage of digestion. So, uh, women tend to have a slightly longer transit time than men do, and that may then help explain why uh, women may be slightly more susceptible to constipation, whereas men might be slightly more susceptible to uh, diarrhea or you know, some of the problems with a lower transit time. Uh, so, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of different factors. Of course, obviously, diet Um, plays a big role in this as well. Um, And again, you know, not to plug fiber, but uh, when you have more fiber in your diet, that can literally act like a a broom to help kind of sweep things toward the exit doors. And so that can help regulate uh, your transit. And, um, you know, it can actually... uh, help uh move things along but by adding the bulk along the way it can actually also help from things going too fast so it's it's kind of your uh your modulator uh between too fast and too slow so um yeah i mean so i think i think you know the the whole process is is fascinating to me uh we're learning a lot more about how the gut microbes may influence this and i think there's there's a lot left to learn, which is really fascinating to me, you know, even about something as seemingly uh, straightforward as digestion.
1: Well, and something, um, I don't think this ended up mentioned in the book, but uh, for example, in uh, in women, um, their point in the menstrual cycle, the hormonal status... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Has a strong impact on um, how how one poos, yep. <laughs> um, as well as you know things like fiber and yep. what you've eaten, spicy food, yep. coffee, you know kale, all of that sort of thing. Yep. Um, and actually, so speaking of fiber, um, people in less developed countries, uh, you noted, have higher poop volumes, mm-hmm. um, and you mentioned that that was because of a kind of higher fiber diet. And I was wondering how much is our concept of how much we poo and how much we should poo um, and what volume we should poo and so on. Like how much of that is a result of culture Mm -hmm. as opposed to biology, like the culture of you know, what's culturally in your diet? Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, a lot of it, I would say has to do with who has been included in a lot of the, the research studies. And if you look back at some of the research studies, it was people in wealthier countries. Uh, they were often white, and they were often men. And so if you're looking at that, you know, of, of course you're going to get a very narrow snapshot. And so, you know, it's sort of ridiculous to suggest that, okay, well, this is, this is normal, right? And everything outside that is, is abnormal. Well, of course not. Um, it has to do with, with who you're including and who you're actively excluding uh, from some of these studies. <clears throat> so, so yeah, so part of it is, is, just based on a a complete lack of diversity in a lot of these early studies that were missing uh, the natural variation uh, uh, among people. I think the other thing is that diet is very culture-specific. And we know that diet plays such a big role in, um, you know, uh, basically how we digest our food and what comes out the other end so so yeah so if you have a diet that is going to be uh, meat and potatoes, that's going to look vastly different from someone who is eating a lot of uh, cassava beans, rice uh you know high high fiber foods like that. So I think what has happened that is encouraging is that you're seeing a lot more attention being played to, uh, being paid to um, <clears throat> what's the role of diet? What's the role of culture? Are you exposed to antibiotics or not? because uh, chronic exposure to antibiotics also uh, plays a role by uh, influencing your your gut bi- microbiome. And I think there's you know good evidence to suggest that in uh, many developed countries are, high fat, low fiber diets, as well as our sedentary lifestyles, as well as our um, frequent exposure to antibiotics are actually causing us to lose a lot of the diversity in our uh, microbiome. And as such, a lot of the potential function of, of those microbes as well. So yeah, so so uh, long, long answer to your question, but yes, I think culture can be extremely important in, in how we think about this.
1: And actually that, you know, now I, I think it's very clear. We know a lot about how white men poop. We're very good mm-hmm. at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering, have there been any studies that you know about, about the effective age? Um, because as you noted in the book for your 50th birthday, someone gave you Metamucil. <laughs> <laughs> this is a thing that happens. You hit middle age and people start talking about constipation. Exactly. <laughs> is, I mean, is there, are there known studies about age and pooping?
0: That's a really interesting question. Um, I didn't look specifically at kind of how that changes. I know that, you know, some uh, motility disorders can be associated with, you know, different conditions that may have an age association. So there may be sort of an indirect, um, you know, connection there. I think maybe also people reach a point where they, uh, they just, you know, have decided they're going to talk about their bodily functions you know? and so maybe it's just more apparent in our discussions um that we're <laughs> we're more used to, to people reaching a certain age and then just sort of you know talking about their pooping habits um you know and it's true right because if you're if you're a young parent you're kind of obsessed with your baby's poop and you know what's the color what's the volume what's the smell you know why is it this color not that color um you know, you pay a lot of attention to that at a certain point, you know, we kind of forget about it. And then, later in life, you know we we kind of uh, discover it again, I guess, uh, you know, and particularly after if you've had like a surgical procedure, you know, because one of the first signs that things are getting back to normal is, have you had a proper bowel move bowel movement? And um you know, we use that as a marker of recovery. so, so yeah, so I think, you know, some of it, some of it is just um, you know, what is maybe acceptable or unacceptable for us to talk about. Um, but that's a good question. I don't I didn't delve specifically into kind of what's the, you know, what are the what are the curves look like um as you age in terms of like transit time or or other attributes.
1: Um, but as, as, you know, we've mentioned, you know, you get to a certain age where you just don't give a crap anymore about your crap. Um, well and, and this is really interesting because a lot of people listening to this might feel more than a little grossed out. And I'll admit, like, I was trying to read this book while I was eating. Don't do that. <laughs> do, not, do not do that. Um, <laughs> and so I love that you ended up discussing disgust. Mm -hmm. Um, which is something that I have also ended up digging into for my own research purposes. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about it. Disgust is part of what scientists call the behavioral immune system. What does that mean? So
0: one of the the, the theories of, of, of how uh, disgust developed as an emotion, and it's a very potent, it's a very strong emotion, is to help us avoid things that might hurt us. And so we're acquainted with the immune system as a way of fighting off infections. The behavioral immune system is sort of a complement to that and the idea is that if you are repulsed by something, you are more likely to avoid it. And that avoidance has a beneficial role. So uh bodily fluid, so poop, pee, vomit, um, you know, someone who has uh, a runny nose, um, you know, <clears throat> someone who looks unwell, uh cockroaches, rats, uh things that could spread disease, there is this kind of knee-jerk aversion to that. Um, and so the idea is that this behavioral immune system is keeping you safe from things that can harm you. Now, of course, uh, it can be dialed up too high, and we know that it can have um, unintended consequences as well. but but the basic idea is that you know we have this aversion for for a reason. to to help to protect us.
1: Yeah, I believe Paul Rosen, um, who's one of the major scientists who studies Mm disgust, refers to it as oral rejection, which is about the most Freudian phrase I have ever heard. (laughs)
0: Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) You can just see a dude with a very strong Austrian accent talking about your oral rejection problems. Exactly, exactly. And I was wondering, you know, are people who have a stronger sense of disgust healthier?
0: Ah, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, if you look at uh, certain communities, there is this kind of correlation with as you as your threats change. You know, do your uh, measures of disgust change to kind of help you meet these threats, right? And so there have been um, some studies suggesting that in certain communities, uh, people with higher disgust levels, yes, can avoid uh, certain pathogens. I think the the question is now, uh, you know, we're pretty acutely aware of like how to avoid specific diseases. So I guess the question is now for for modern society, does disgust still have that same potent protection um, that it used to have for our ancestors? And I think that's that's a question that that is mm-hmm. suggesting that maybe the connection is a little murkier. Uh, but yes, theoretically, it would help you, uh, you know, avoid some of these uh, some of these pathogens. Um, but again, the, the the flip side is <clears throat> if you are uh, associating specific diseases with specific groups of people, and you don't see yourself as that among that uh, that that group of people. Disgust may actually give you a false sense of security because then you are thinking, okay, well, I don't belong to that group of people. They're the ones that are <clears throat> more susceptible to this disease, and I'm less susceptible. So we saw that, for example, with uh, COVID. Uh, And so, you know, initially, uh, there was a lot of uh, xenophobia, there was a lot of animosity directed towards Asian people. And so associating COVID as uh, a disease in that community can give you then the false sense that you're less susceptible to it. And it's the same is true for monkeypox. So monkeypox, at least so far, has disproportionately um, affected the LGBT community. And so people who would suggest, oh, this is a gay disease, I'm not as susceptible to that. Can give themselves a false sense of security that this is not something that you know they're they're going to get. So so it can work against you as as well. And I think we're seeing that. Um, so there there is this kind of uh, you know double-edged sword there.
1: Well, and it also leads to a lot of problematic behaviors, right? Like that right. kind of disgust is often connected with, I think, what what is usually called moral disgust, Mm -hmm. right? And moral disgust is things that are morally nasty to us, and therefore we are disgusted by them. And so, like, the acceptable version of this is is things like incest Mm -hmm. is is morally disgusting. Mm -hmm. But people will also um, kind of expand that to outgroups, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so, you will have Actual measures of disgust detected in people who are virulently racist mm-hmm. um, for example,
0: yeah, yeah absolutely, um,
1: which is awful. like that is terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it it's also it also shows you that you know, disgust can affect not just kind of what we see but also very much how we behave,
0: right. And I think part of the antidote to that is understanding how disgust works and understanding that we're more than just our emotions, you know, so, so yes, it's true. Uh, You can have uh, moral disgust, uh, pathogen disgust, and then I think the other one is sexual disgust. And um, yes, if, if you score higher um, on these scales, in particular, the pathogen disgust, There is a correlation that uh, you may be more likely to be uh, xenophobic, for example, because of the fear that this other person is going to bring in disease, you know, in part. But we also know that people can get past that uh, by you know, personalizing by, you know, understanding who uh, people are in this other group, you know, that they have names, they have identities, you know, you get to know them, you understand that they're not a threat you might have thought they were. Um, So, so part of this kind of maybe blunting of this, this, this other, uh, the, the downside of, of disgust is just kind of being aware of, of how it works, and how we can, uh, you know, get used to things uh, that used to disgust us. You know, so going back to the example of uh, baby diapers, right? You know, I talked to parents who, uh, you know, basically confided in me that they dry heaved when, you know, they first were having to change their baby's diaper. But you get over that over time, because you care about that infant, and you have to do it in order to care for, um, you know, that child. And so, you know, through habituation, uh, through this kind of uh, exposure over time, that emotion can lessen. And so, I think that's the hopeful thing is that, that you know, yes, there are these um, undesirable side effects, but that's you know that's that's not a given. We can we can get over those.
1: So I actually wanted to pursue the whole uh, babies and disgust um, mm-hmm. angle a mm-hmm. little bit because it, it does seem to me that humans kind of have more than their fair share of disgust, especially when it comes to poop. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting to me is that we are not born with this. Right, babies and toddlers are not generally disgusted by poop. They will stick their hands down their own diapers. They that's will put anything in their mouths. If you do not take the dog poo away. That's right. And this is interesting because there are many species that are not humans that eat poop. Right. Not just dogs, um, some primates, a lot right. of rodents. Um, right. and, and so I was wondering, you know, th- it does seem that there are some benefits for example, to actually ingesting poop, most particularly in terms of things like seeding the microbiome, which we're mm-hmm. going to talk more about. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do humans kind of have this deep, avid disgust?
0: Oh, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I it, it is true that uh, there seems to be an age below which uh, babies will happily eat something that is presented to them as poop. So uh, there was a famous experiment by Paul Rosen again, and um, he basically had uh, peanut butter and I think it was Limburger cheese that was mixed together, but it was presented to uh, young kids as uh, dog poop i gotta be and, clear. That
1: sounds about equally. as disgusting. Yeah, oh, right. Wow. No, <laughs> no,
0: no. It's it, oh. it, it, it it's <laughs> disgusting. But 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 edible don't go but, together. <laughs> <laughs> but but edible. Um, but there theoretically. was theoretically yes, theoretically <laughs> theoretically, but there was a very specific cutoff. So kids below a certain age were like, oh yeah, this is great. You know, to your point, they weren't disgusted. But above a certain age, they were. And they were like, "Ugh, no, gross, get it away." So, so I think the the suggestion is that there is this kind of broad framework uh, that we have that evolution has given us, and then cultural cues kind of help fill in the gaps. Uh, you know the blanks, uh, but what's interesting is that poop is is sort of universal. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter which culture you go to; it's kind of at the top of the list uh, uh, around the world. So, so that was part of what, of what was interesting to me is you know, poop is this sort of universal thing that almost all of us have agreed is is disgusting, and yet, to your point um a lot of these other um animals will ingest it, and the idea is that yes, it can um, help provide nutrients that can help seed the microbiome and um so so it, it, in essence uh some of these other animals are it's it's basically akin to a fecal transplant if you think about it
1: yeah. and this is really interesting because you know as as you mentioned it's one of those things that most people are disgusted by but at the same time it is also something that a lot of people have thought about in terms of medicine Mm-hmm. Um, poop has been used as medicine mm-hmm. <laughs> through history. Um, and so, for example, we think of fecal transplants as like the cool, new hotness mm-hmm. um in terms of of medicine. And it's really not. You actually noted that the first fecal transplant we know of actually took place in China in the fourth century, and mm-hmm. it worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was wondering, what did they do? Oh, so
0: so it was basically um a soup. <laughs> Um, they would they would sometimes use kind of these euphemistic terms for it. I think one of them was yellow dragon soup. um and it was usually from a child. um, and it was basically a, you know, a suspension and broth. And it was used for a number of different things, and I I think the list of applications kind of grew. So you know, to the point where you know, many of them were were probably, uh, you know, a, a little bit far afield from what was actually happening internally. I'm but, sure it but, makes
1: your hair shiny. Yeah, exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but but yeah, it it was. Um, Uh, at least as far as we know, one of the earliest documented uh, uses of fecal transplants. And so for gastrointestinal issues, um, it appeared to be sort of this miracle cure, and um, then was, you know, picked up by uh, later um, doctors in China, um, and it was referenced again later in history. And then, you know, it kind of gradually <clears throat> slowly spread through, uh, through the world. Um, you know, it's, it's a very uh, uh, common thing in veterinary medicine now, uh, especially in uh, ruminants like cows and sheep, where you can actually um, transplant the kind of partially uh, digested food and kind of the, the fluid in the rumen from one animal to another who is ailing. And of course, you're also then transplanting some of those microbes. And that's uh, this um, technique called uh, transfaunation, I believe is what it's called. Um, that has existed since, uh, you know, the, the medieval period uh, in, in Italy, I think it was. So so yeah, so a lot of these concepts have uh, quite a bit of history to them. Uh, and I think it's it's basically something that we kind of forgot about uh, for a while and then just kind of rediscovered. And, um, you know, now, of course, uh, fecal transplants are solidly in, in mainstream medicine and and there's all kinds of applications that are being tested for now.
1: And fecal transplants, of course, rely on the concept of the gut microbiome, um, which has become such a buzzword lately in scientific <laughs> coverage that Gastropod podcast gave it its own drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> which it absolutely deserves, um, and of course, for science, you had your own gut microbiome sequenced. How'd you do? I did.
0: <laughs> you know what was funny is that I was I, I was actually sort of like cramming for this like a test, um, uh, which I you know in hindsight was kind of hilarious. But I I had this idea that you know I was going to get you know the the most uh, number of. Uh, species that I could. And so I was eating yogurt, I was taking this probiotic supplement, I was eating fiber, I had a lot of vegetables. And so there were about, I think 180 Uh, species in my gut. And I was absolutely fascinated by this because, you know, I was, I was basically sort of geeking out about, you know, okay, what are, what are the most prevalent ones and, you know, what are these other species and what, what do they do? And one of the things that was really astounding to me is that, you know, maybe half of the species, we have no idea what they do, you know, so they would say, here's, here's the name of the species. And then, Here's something about it, basically, you know, isolated from the poop of a healthy 25-year-old. And that's it. You know, we don't really have any more um, idea than that. And so, to me, just like the potential is enormous, but also... We really don't have a great sense of what individual species are doing, let alone how they're interacting together in communities. And so I think there's a lot of promise there, but I think then that also requires a lot of caution uh, when people are saying, Oh yeah, you know, it can make your hair shiny and you know, it can make you thin, and you know, all of these things that we're attaching to the microbiome as this sort of like wonder drug. When in essence, it's this very complicated ecological system. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I like to think of it as this kind of miniature rainforest in our gut, you know, have predators, you have prey, you have keystone species, which are the most important ones, and they'll recruit others or keep others at bay. So there's this fascinating diversity and interaction. And we're just, you know, at the point of of learning about this. Um, and one of the other things um, that was just really interesting to me and actually a little bit disturbing was: you know, I had done a lot of reporting on um, C. diff, uh, which is this, you know, bacterial infection and uh, of which uh, transplant, uh, fecal transplants uh, can be life-saving. And uh, the report actually. Uh, indicated that I had a small amount of C. diff in my gut as well. So I was actually a transient carrier of this microbe at the time, but it was at a small enough level. And the rest of my gut microbe was sufficiently balanced that it was keeping it at bay. And I didn't have uh, any symptoms, um, you know, and I haven't since, but that was kind of like a sobering reminder that we may be carrying a whole bunch of different pathogens within us, but it's the combined interaction of these other microbes that are keeping us healthy. And so that when there is an imbalance, then there's an opening, you know, for for some of these to kind of rear their heads. Um, so that was really, um, sobering for me and then made me grateful for the other microbes in my gut that were working. Um, and then the one very last thing that was really astounding to me is, um, you know, after kind of cramming for this test and doing all of these things, I had this uh, probiotic that had 10 different species of, of microbes. Not a single one appeared in my gut. Uh, and in fact, the what did appear in my gut were some of the microbes from the yogurt. And so, what that suggests, you know, who knows the, maybe this probiotic, uh, you know, maybe they weren't actually live cultures, maybe there weren't enough of them. Uh, but it also suggests uh, what a lot of researchers have said, which is, it's more important to eat fiber and more important to eat these uh, um, fermented or uh, fermented foods in the context of actual food. Uh, instead of just as pills, uh, because they're more likely to to actually take in your gut and do something.
1: Well, and also this is something that I think about a lot as a like scientific and also skeptical person. You know, there's a long path between your mouth and your butt. Yep, and. When you're taking antioxidants, for example, by mouth or bacteria or something by mouth, they are going to go through a whole series of pHs and mechanical breakdown and biological breakdown. And I mean, odds are that stuff is just not going to dramatically end up in your bloodstream (laughs) or in your poop. (laughs) You know? Right. Right. Putting something in one end does not mean you're going to see it at the other. Right, right. I mean, there's this
0: whole torture chest or uh, torture test for for microbes on your way through. Right, uh, you know, we know that the the stomach has a very low uh, pH, which a lot of the microbes don't survive. So, right, so the ones that actually make it to your gut are the hardy survivors, um, and they're probably only a fraction of of what you started with. So, you know, and that's. You know, by uh, you know, that isn't a, a coincidence. You know, that is to help you know protect us from 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 pathogens as well. But yes, it suggests that um, you know a lot of these uh, supplements, uh, you know that that aren't well re- regulated, you know you don't really have a good sense of of you know whether any of these uh, little microbes are going to make it <laughs> to where they need to be. Um, so I think that's that's another reason for caution, yeah,
1: and this actually kind of leads me to one of the things that that your book kind of highlighted to me is that the microbiome, um particularly like the the kind of intestinal microbiome, is both. Astonishingly flexible and also really not flexible at all. So, for example, you know, uh, when you have a C. diff infection and you need a fecal transplant, you will get a completely different set of microbes Mm -hmm. and it can clear up some people's C. diff infections overnight. They are Mm -hmm. miracles, they are amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you also talked with a scientist who analyzed the microbiome of his own poo for literal years. And he described these amazingly rapid gut microbiome shifts when he ate certain things. Mm -hmm. But at the other end, it just snapped right back to what it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the people who get the fecal transplants report being symptom-free for years. Why don't they snap back? Why Uh, some guts snap back and others don't?
0: Right, so so part of that has to do with the concept of, of uh, balance or biosis or dysbiosis. So if you think about uh, people who have uh, uh, a C. diff infection, that's uh, an extreme example of a gut dysbiosis. Their gut is out of balance, and it is allowing the C. diff, uh, you know, kind of like this weedy bacteria, if you will, to sort of invade this garden that would otherwise be more or less in balance if you're able to reseed that tract and restore that balance, then you can kind of keep that, uh, that C. diff and other uh, pathogens at bay. So, so that's, that's, you know, so in that example, um, you know, what the the gut bi- microbiome is, is wanting for, for lack of a better word uh, is this kind of uh, uh balance. And, you know, you can do that with different types of species, uh, because there's a lot of overlap in function. Uh, At the same time, if you're eating uh, a different diet, so for example, the um, the researcher that I went to had been in, traveling in Thailand and eating a completely different range of foods. His gut microbiome shifted when he was there in response to the diet. But then when he returned uh, to, to the United States, then it shifted back. And so, yes, there is this kind of uh, uh, you know temporary shift to accommodate what you're eating, and then you kind of go back. But But what you're going back to is this sort of relative balance. Um, So, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the comparison to the ecosystem is actually a very good one, right? Um, when you have an ecosystem that is not under a lot of stress, so it is generally doing pretty well, and you plonk down, say, an invasive species in it, mm-hmm. that invasive species is going to have a heck of a harder time getting a toehold in a very healthy ecosystem. Exactly. Whereas if you have an ecosystem that is undergoing a lot of human-caused stress, and you plonk an invasive species down in there, the invasive species is going to be like, yes! <laughs> ex- ex- exactly. Exactly.
0: Exactly right. And and yes. And so and so basically, your uh, your goal in in uh, doing a fecal transplant for something like a C diff is to create a hostile environment for that invader, right? And what a hostile environment for that invader is is basically a well functioning, uh, well balanced ecosystem. You know that is basically crowding it out um so yes so so and 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 as you get to kind of other uh conditions though uh you know such as like autoimmune uh diseases uh colitis uh crohn's disease where fecal transplants are being used as well the mechanism may be a little bit more complicated and so it may be not enough to just crowd out uh, the bad actors, but to actually then also provide uh, some sort of uh, combination of, of chemicals of products, bacterial products or other products that can, uh, you know shift the balance such that you're not attacking your own cells.
1: And, you know, the fecal transplants, as you note, um, can be lifesavers in terms of Mm -hmm. treating things like C. diff. I was also really struck by how hard of a time they have had in terms of regulation and uptake. And in part, that's actually because of scientific revulsion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was wondering how much of that do you think... Arises not from, you know, disgust. You'd like to think scientists are not susceptible to disgust, but they totally are. Um, From the, I wonder how much of the disgust actually arises from the uncontrolled nature of the fecal transplant, right? Because it's literally poop, it's everything in it, including the bacteria and the viruses. It is not a pure thing that science has carefully designed.
0: Right, absolutely. So yes, as I as I note, it's a regulatory nightmare because it's it isn't one thing. I mean, you're you're talking about um, you know two hundred different bacterial species, you know, or one hundred and fifty to two hundred, but but yeah, you know, and and you don't know exactly what a lot of them are doing, and you're taking a much more ecological approach to medicine than medicine is used to, and that's a big shift um so it's not this kind of silver bullet you know uh you know here's the problem and we're going to resolve it with you know drug x or remedy y it's this whole rebalancing and i think that has taken um you know, doctors a while to get comfortable with. And, you know, even now there's been this tension between trying to pare down the number of microbes and so, so experiments saying, okay, well, is it these 50 microbes that are really doing uh, the, the bulk of the work in a fecal transplant? And if so, can we just give someone these 50 uh, in a, a you know more refined uh, method than than a than a fecal transplant, uh, but that's been a really hard thing to 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 do because again, you're talking about this kind of community. So, so yes, I think, I think that absolutely is, is playing a big role as well. And, and I think, you know, most, uh, doctors have kind of gotten past the revulsion, uh, because they've seen just how remarkably effective, uh, the, the therapy can be, but now the problem is, okay, well, how do you can you kind of refine the essence of what is, what is actually, uh, uh, you know, doing the trick here? And is there a way for us to uh, perhaps do a, a refined fecal transplant so that it's more palatable to people?
1: And so, that's really interesting, kind of the palatability kind of goes with another theme that I actually really noticed kind of through this book, and it's the theme of purity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the theme of of kind of cleanliness. Um, and that actually kind of gets me onto the topic of biosolids and redu- reuse of sewage, mm-hmm. um, which you spend a lot of time on in the book and I found really fascinating. First of all, what are biosolids and what can we use them for?
0: Uh, great. So yes, biosolids are basically the organic matter that is left after uh, wastewater treatment process. So it's poop. Um, and in particular, uh, poop is actually uh, made up quite a bit of, of bacteria. So 30 to 40% of the dry weight of poop is actually bacteria. Uh, so a lot of the organic matter is actually uh, microbes. You also have um or the other organic matter that may have been flushed down the toilet, or is uh the f- the food fibers uh that that are that are in us and were the corn uh, the corn exactly the corn <laughs> what, what's 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 left of the corn um which the microbes can digest quite well um and other, uh yeah other bits of organic matter um, you have uh, some sand, you have some nutrients, but it's basically the combined organic matter that has been reduced from what it was and degraded by the microbes into simpler forms of of carbon. So it's this, this, this kind of uh, organic matter. And so what it can be used for, uh, which I think is really astounding, is uh, a growing list of things. Uh, one of the, the, the principal ones is you can uh, digest this matter in these big biodigesters. And what they're doing is they're essentially mimicking the conditions of the gut. So it's anaerobic, which means there's no oxygen, uh, which is the condition that a lot of these microbes like. And there are particular microbes called archaea microbes. And as part of their metabolism, they will take bits of food that are left over from other bacteria. And as part of kind of chomping away on this food and then uh, releasing these uh, metabolites, they produce methane gas. And so these big biodigesters that are at uh, wastewater treatment plants, among other facilities, uh, like uh, livestock facilities, you can actually create renewable biogas. And biogas can then be used to generate electricity, uh, heat, uh, biofuels. So there are actually wastewater treatment plants that are using their biogas to power buses uh, other vehicles. You can even refine biogas into a fuel that could be used as a rocket fuel. So you could literally uh, help astronauts blast off <laughs> through through uh, the power of poop. Um, so that is uh, a really uh, uh, a great application and a growing application. Uh, there are other things that you can also extract. You can extract phosphorus. Uh, from uh from poop from from biosolids and phosphorus uh if it goes where it shouldn't can actually be a really harmful environmental pollutant uh, because it's a nutrient and in excess it can cause this sort of explosion of uh, of, of algae growth and so uh, in some waterways this sort of ex- explosion of algae growth these harmful algal blooms have actually created dead zones because they are using up all of the oxygen in that part of the water And we have seen that in a number of different bodies of water throughout the world, and that can be an environmental catastrophe. And so phosphorus and nitrogen are the two main ones there. Those can be recovered. And phosphorus, for example, can be recovered and reused as a fertilizer for farms. In the same way, you can actually convert biosolids into compost and fertilizer, and you can do so either on uh, farms and in forests to help regenerate uh, the growth of trees, like after a forest fire, for example, or you can also then uh, heat treat them or compost them in in such a way that you're killing off all of the the microbes. And then that can be safely used uh, for gardens, for home gardens. So I actually uh, use them on my own vegetable gardens and flower gardens.
1: and. I was actually thinking about this because, of course, we can get these biosolids because we poop in toilets. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of species do not poop in toilets. Right. Um, What do you think the effect has been as humans? We are now some of the planet's most prolific poopers, and we have literally taken our crap home. Yep. What has that done removed kind of from the ecosystem i mean it's it's also done things like put all of our sewage into rivers which is bad
0: right, right um, but right. what
1: have we what have we taken away
0: right right so so nature for millions of years has had these remarkably efficient recycling systems so you know the the phosphorus uh uh cycle uh nitrogen cycle uh the water cycle and so all of these things have existed and poop has always been a part of that natural process. You know, uh, animals uh, live, they die, they decay. Those nutrients go onto the soil, but while they're alive, the nutrients from the poop also go into the soil, and in fact, there's been this really interesting uh, research uh, by Chris Dowdy. He's at uh, the University of Northern Arizona, I believe, and looking at these megafauna from thousands of years ago and how central they were in transporting phosphorus around the world and basically distributing the nutrients. And they were actually actively a part of this recycling system. So. The loss of those megafauna uh, really had a huge impact on uh, the disruption of this recycling system. And then we come into play and we're like, no, we're just going to put all of our stuff in landfills where they're the least useful. And so we are actively departing these cycles of recycling, and I think it's had a huge consequence on uh, the ability of nature to regenerate. And so, you know, by rejoining this cycle, we're kind of understanding that yeah you know nature has had this good thing going for for a while we were kind of the odd ones out and saying nope, we're good we're going <laughs> to we're going to we're going to opt out we're going to put our stuff over here because we're you know disgusted we don't want to think about it and we've literally put it in the least useful place that we can that we can think of and so you know by rethinking what it is and and what it can do and how we can kind of rejoin these cycles. Uh, you know, I think we can kind of reclaim some of that power.
1: Yeah. And you also talk about, for example, um developing drinking water um Mm -hmm. from sewage water, um, which actually results in water that is so pure it is actually not especially safe to drink. You have to add minerals and salts back. Um, you know, and and interestingly, disgust comes in again. People are afraid to drink it. And they feel better about it when it's gone through like a wetland or groundwater, even though that actually makes it less pure. Yep. And this this idea of purity is kind of interesting because it's one of the driving themes in your book is that we have these current ideas of what is valuable Mm -hmm. and what is clean and what is progress. And you say that these ideas are holding us back from using poop effectively. Yeah. And I was wondering, what is it that we value, and what we think is progress that stops us from using our own waste?
0: Great question. Um, I think there's there's been this sense that progress and value comes in the form of this sort of tangible new product, you know, new app, new technology, instead of rethinking what we already have. And so, you know the I think the 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 purification of wastewater is a great example because what do we have in abundance? Well, we have wastewater in abundance. you know we have poop in abundance. we're always going to poop as long as we're here on the planet, we will always have that natural resource, right? And so we can say, oh gross, let's let's." you know dispose of it somewhere or we can decide that we're going to use it for for good and for progress and so part of it is is kind of getting past our notions of of you know what does value actually what what does it mean? And how can we extract that from, from things that may not be, you know, particularly shiny or attractive, but have a lot of uh, potential to them. And so, for 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 water, one of the really interesting things um, and sort of like the evolution and how this is, has come about is you had um, a lot of communities that were so disgusted by the idea of recycling wastewater that they killed these projects. Of course, now... Uh, drought and global warming uh have have, have basically uh, dried up a lot of these uh available sources of fresh water and so in desperation people are looking back and saying oh well what else do we have well we have wastewater and so there is this kind of uh curve that you have to get over of you know in, in some cases maybe the the desperation is such that you have kind of rediscovered this thing that's been there all along. Uh, But even so uh, some of these uh, groundwater replenishment systems have to put the water in the ground and then it comes back out of the ground and then it's magically water. (laughs) So yes, to your point, you know, it it, it is, it is so pure. It's basically distilled water. Uh, But one of the fun things is that in Thinking about what has value, if you give someone uh, a sample of this water, they may be less likely to want to drink it. But if you give it to them in the form of a beer, then they will get past their disgust because they're like, oh, a beer. Yeah, free beer. OK, I'll try that. And in fact, brewers love this um uh, this cleansing of of, of wastewater, because it's literally a blank slate when you're done treating it. And so you can recreate any kind of beer you want, you can recreate the water profile of any city in the world, you know, there are recipes for that. And then you can create all of these really interesting beers. And so what has happened is you're kind of shifting what that water is, to something that's more acceptable to people, you give them a free beer, and then you can talk about the process of, you know, what it took to create that. And that has actually been really effective in getting people past this, this kind of discussed barrier. Um, So I think, you know, part of it is just really kind of understanding what are our problems? What do we have available to us as tools? How do we think long term about kind of how we can get to some of these solutions? And how do we help people get past some of these barriers, including uh, discussed, and that's going to require not just uh, technology and engineering, but also bringing in some of the social sciences, you know psychology, sociology uh, because it's all well and good if you have this technology, but if no one wants to use it, you know you're not making progress, right? You have to bring people along uh, with you and and educate them and explain why it's so important. But I think it's a it's a rethinking of how we're going to move forward. And it's not just always about this you know, disruptive new technology, but maybe the progress is rethinking how we can uh, much more efficiently use what we already have uh, literally inside of us.
1: Well, Bryn, I could talk about this for ages. <laughs> we barely got to like half of this book. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing all this crap with us at the risk of earning another bleep from the producer. It's good shit.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Bethany. It was a pleasure. And uh, yes, there's 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 a load more in the book.
1: As it were. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Bryn Nelson and his book, Flush, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure, we've got links available for you at scienceforthepeople.ca. That's our website. You know it well. You can also subscribe to the show. We'd love a review or two just to let us know how we're doing. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook for updates. And if our show means a lot to you and you want to help keep it going, we've got a Patreon page where you can support our podcasters with a monthly donation or make it a one-time thing. No matter what, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders
0: and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me,
1: Rochelle Saunders.